Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, this is the Marvel Roundup slash Marvel Palooza that I've been promising for quite some time now. There is so much Marvel content that has become available in the past few months, you know, with Disney Plus putting out content, along with still what's happening theatrically in the official MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe, as well as uh, Sony as well, which has had quite some success with their releases as well, especially since they've integrated Spider-Man into the MCU. So what we'll be covering today is some of this content that's come available. First, What If, which was an animated series on Disney+, Plus, which wrapped up back in November. Next, Shang-Chi, which was a big hit, came out on Labor Day, I believe, and is now available for stream on Disney+. Plus. It became available about three, four weeks ago. It's excellent, by the way. I'll preview my review. Also, Hawkeye, the series, Christmas-themed, will be wrapping up next week, and I finally caught up on it, the first five episodes. It's only six episodes long. Pretty low-key, low stakes, I should say, for a Marvel product, but entertaining nonetheless. And I'll give you a full review of that or my opinions up until this point. We'll see if it sticks to landing. It's been fine. It's been good. Even a little bit better than fine. I'm curious to see how it lands next week. And lastly, I will be seeing the new Spider-Man movie, which I have yet not seen, by the way. But I am recording this before I go see it. And I'll be giving you my Spider-Man review. Spider-Man No Way Home. Before all of that, just a reminder to subscribe so you know when episodes are available. In our current series, we continue to recap Dexter New Blood from show, on Showtime, the reboot of the Michael C. Hall Dexter serial killer show. And it's picking up steam, actually. Started off pretty low-key. The premise is interesting of him rebooting his life with the show as well, by the way. And they've taken things in a pretty interesting direction. And I am very curious to see if they can stick the landing here as well. There's four episodes to go. So if you're just catching up now, I do recommend you start watching. I do think it's worthwhile. I would let you know if I thought it was a waste of time. <laughs> I do think they're going to pull off something at least mildly entertaining here. Also, we just wrapped up our Succession season recap, a great season of Succession as usual for them. And there will be a little more Succession content. I will be interviewing Sarah again. If you have been following along there, we did a psychological investigation of the family, a case study. She's a psychotherapist and provided some insight there, but she was probably halfway through season three and now she's all caught up. So I will definitely be recording with her. Also, my friend Sydney, who's a big PTA fan, Paul Thomas Anderson, there's a new movie coming out with Bradley Cooper called Licorice Pizza. It's dropping next week or becoming available next week in theaters only. And I have a conversation with her about Paul Thomas Anderson, which I will be publishing once I've seen Licorice Pizza. And also I have a conversation with her where we recap our thoughts on this current season of Ted Lasso, as well as White Lotus, two shows that we had a lot of opinions on, and all of that will be publishing within the next few weeks. So make sure you subscribe. You'll know when all that becomes available. And of course, as usual, drop me an email if you have any comments. Need some introduction at gmail.com. And with that out of the way, let's get into our Marvel content conversation. start off with maybe like in chronological order what became available first which was Shang-Chi came out Labor Day weekend I believe and a huge hit actually the biggest hit theatrically since the pandemic began and I can see why the film was such a hit I'm a big fan of this film if you caught my review of Black Widow in this same podcast feed I, I basically thought that that was one of the weakest of all the Marvel films but there was a few aspects to it that kind of bumped it up into the middle mostly some of the really fun performances the choreographed fighting was very good and those are the type of things that elevated it slightly but it was pretty weak I felt it was a little bit lazy honestly in its construction as opposed to Shang-Chi which I was very impressed with you have Destin Daniel Cretton directing and one of the screenwriters as well who interestingly by the way comes from a background where you may have seen Short Term 12, which was the breakout film for Brie Larson. It's where she first gained a lot of her attention before her Academy Award win. And most recently, he directed Just Mercy with Jamie Foxx and Michael B. Jordan. It's funny how all roads lead back to Marvel <laughs> nowadays. Jamie Foxx is one of the villains in the new Spider-Man movie. Not a spoiler because it's in the trailer. Hopefully I didn't spoil that for you. And Michael B. Jordan, of course, 
in Black Panther. But everyone appears to be in a Marvel product nowadays. But if you've seen any of his previous works, what's interesting is that he's very interested in family dynamics and in these interpersonal dramas, not really an, act, uh, an action director. So I do give Marvel credit, or Kevin Feige, as the head of the ba brain trust, that, although he's not the only one doing this, of course, of managing these properties. It's almost like the action and the special effects and a lot of the styling and set design, etc., is probably, it's almost a template that they follow. I feel like these films are storyboarded and pre-visualized and designed way before there's any casting even done on these shows, on these movies and, and shows. So I feel it's like a machine and they plug in this outside talent. But to their credit, I do think that those filmmakers usually get a chance to put their own fingerprints on the material. And I definitely think that's the case here. First of all, there is very much a love of the Hong Kong cinema that this film, Shang-Chi, correlates to in its casting for, if, for no other reason, but of course in its themes as well. And also this interpersonal family dynamic, which plays out here. So some really great things in this film. I would begin with Tony Leung. Tony Leung, if you've never seen him before in a film, he's one of the most charismatic actors in history, probably. <laughs> and he has been a huge star in Hong Kong for decades, for 30 years now, probably. One of the most recognizable um, celebrities out there. And it's a great decision, by the way, to open the film on this flashback, this kind of um, prelude that really gets into his backstory this warlord and this romance that he discovers in looking for these 10 rings, this, this power source that he's been tracking throughout his life. And simply put, this opening segment of the film won me over completely. I was, I love the fighting. And most importantly, this is the thing I will say that is very much a theme of, of Hong Kong action movies that are being aped here. The style is being aped here to some extent. Not only is that the action is very much around these low stakes interpersonal dynamics. But that's something that is so rare, especially in Marvel movies. I mean, it's really bad in Michael Bay movies as well, but Marvel's maybe the biggest, most egregious examples of getting this wrong. Simply put, when I'm watching a Marvel movie, oftentimes I will completely unplug during the action sequences. Like I mentioned before, it feels like they were kind of pre-designed way before the film was even put into place. So they're just kind of plugging people's faces into these special effects. And it feels like there's no stakes. It's just some action to keep you awake for the next beat in the movie. And similarly, at the very end of these films, oftentimes the stakes are so high. Universes or the multiverse in some cases are going to be extinguished. You know that that can't happen either because the stakes can't possibly be that high. It would basically <laughs> destroy the, the Marvel franchise itself. So sometimes the stakes being feeling so impersonal, it's just action scenes. And you know that at the end, it's just going to be a stalemate anyway, because you can't kill off any of the main characters at that moment early in the film. Or at the end, when you get to these massive, you know, a giant city floating over another city that's going to get squished or something that's so, where the stakes are simply so huge that it serves the same purpose. It almost becomes irrelevant. What they get so right in this film is that there is character development through action, something that I really, really wish we saw more of. The stakes are very personal. The fight sequence, almost every single one of them are very much designed to think about what are the stakes, the interpersonal stakes at this moment, and how does the outcome of this fight change the plot of the movie? Extremely rare that we see this. It seems very basic, but it is actually surprisingly rare. So I loved it. I loved all of these character beats. I love without spoiling things that there is a cameo here that turns out to be not a cameo, but actually one of the main roles that they kept kind of a secret. I wasn't aware of it. Although I think if you look at it at IMDB, it's pretty much given away, but I recommend you don't. You go in blind. If you do not know this, I will simply tease it as the fact that maybe one of the biggest complaints about Iron Man 3 is corrected here. I liked Iron Man 3, by the way. I like the whole Shane Black of it all. And I'll bring up Shane Black again when we talk about the Hawkeye series. But some of the understandable arguments made for Iron Man 3 are corrected here in a very, very entertaining way. Once again, I'm very impressed by the fact that Marvel really doesn't waste anything. They're able to reuse and reiterate on sometimes their weakest points and make them essential to the mythology. It's something they've done multiple times by, for example, reclaiming the worst of the Thor movies and making it utterly essential to the series. I almost feel like this is part of their template. Every time they get feedback from the fans and the critics and they say, this is really, really weak. It's almost like they go specifically at that and they try to correct it in the subsequent films. And I think that's part of the success of this franchise. So even in the finale, where things get very metaphysical and very high stakes, 
I have to say that just when I was about to turn off my brain, I'm like, okay, here's the last 20 minutes of a Marvel movie. This is when I can get on my phone and start putting my notes together or checking the headlines because I usually completely tune out at this point, but not in this case. I was very impressed because once again, the stakes get very, very over the top. We're talking about interdimensional demons and things like that, but they're very personal stakes. There is this playing out of this familial passing of the guard and it's really really compelling stuff it's really well done a lot of this has to do with the uh, performances but it's in the action choreography itself every character in the action sequence at the end has an arc that they go on and it's really great stuff this should be a template for other type of franchise films that get this so wrong use this as a tool to correct some of these low stakes or tedious action sequences so a pretty glowing review if i have any negatives i have a few negative things to say very minor one is I feel that after that really, really great intro, even you really can't come down from uh, <laughs> that you know, beautiful romantic action sequence that we see in that prelude with Tony Leung, that we suddenly pivot to modern day San Francisco with Simu Liu, which I haven't even mentioned yet, but he plays Shang-Chi, and his best friend Aquafina. And I have to say that this couple is fun. They're very funny. Aquafina has a lot of funny one-liners. He also is pretty blank-faced, kind of just letting this all happen to him, although he knows a lot more about what's happening. So that's actually something that's interesting, that he is much more aware of what is to come than he kind of lets on at first. But what I would say is that regardless, this dynamic is fun. I enjoy their chemistry and their scenes together, but it's not great, especially, I'd say, uh, Simu Liu, who I'm not that familiar with. I've seen him on a couple of sitcoms here and there, but really not that familiar with. I think that he kind of falls into the trap of a lot of Marvel leading men where he is almost, he's kind of a bland protagonist. And I don't mean that as insulting as it may sound. I feel like this is the formula for Marvel is that you kind of leave, and this is kind of a formula for older action films as well, by the way, you kind of leave this space in the film for these young men, the teenagers and younger who are probably watching this film to project themselves into it, right? So he's not the most charismatic. He's not the most dynamic character out there. And I mean, this is, I feel the same way about Steve Rogers in the Captain America movies. And honestly, I felt the same way about Thor, even at the beginning of the series, although his characters, you know, his uh, personality is really, uh, or Chris Helmsworth has probably guided a lot of the comedy and the personality that has emerged for that character over time. So nothing he does is wrong. And uh, he's definitely good in his fight scenes, but I think that the movie itself kind of leaves him as this relatively bland character, considering some of the characters around him. And that's probably intentional. And uh, hopefully he will develop as this series continues. And I'm sure there will be more sequels after the success of this one. And I kind of make a similar argument in a different way as far as Aquafina goes. She's very entertaining, but really feels like she's just doing her Aquafina shtick, which is fine for this movie, but she doesn't really rise beyond the material she so it's all good i don't want that to sound as critical as it may come off as i enjoyed it for sure but it just doesn't hold up to compared to some of these other great actors and just some of the great action sequences the other once again very minor criticism i'd make is every single time the film tries to kind of shoehorn in all the marvel stuff it has to fold into it they do a pretty good job with this they bring in db wong in a very small role not a spoiler and uh by the end there's like basically if it's they wait until the bonus scene basically but they fold it into the rest of the Marvel MCU. And this is a little bit unnecessary to me. I mean, just for the, but it's expected in the Marvel films. And honestly, I like all those teases. I'm curious to see how they fold it into the MCU. So these are minor, minor quibbles, just very minor. Oh, one more minor criticism I would throw in there too is the budget. I do think this is probably one of the cheaper of the Marvel films and it shows in the special effects. Some of the special effects are really perfect, really aces, so I think they spent the money in the right places. Some of the special effects are pretty dodgy. They look a little bit cheesy, a little video, video gamey, but that's to be expected. I mean, they're not going to spend $300 million on every one of these films, so I think they did spend the money in the right place, but it is noticeable sometimes, a little bit cheesy on the special effects. Once again, these are very, very minor quibbles. I really, really enjoyed this film. I definitely would put it near the top of the Marvel uh, stack, and definitely from these origin films, it's one of the stronger ones, no doubt about it. So I do have some recommendations related to this film, and they're all around Tony Leung. So if you were unfamiliar with him, like I mentioned before, he's one of the absolute biggest stars in Hong Kong history. And just three films I'd recommend of his, of the many, many he's had. First, I'd recommend In the Mood for Love. This is Tony Leung and Maggie Chung in a unrequited love set in 1962. And it's this very tragic romance between these two characters. They both look incredible in this film, by the way. This is a very, very stylish film. 
And there's definitely a political metaphor here as well. Unfortunately, I don't know enough about the history of Hong Kong and its relationship with China. And uh, when there was under British rule, which is this phase that they're entering in this movie and that it ends, ended right around the time this film was produced, by the way. So there's definitely a political metaphor here. The director is Wang Kar Wai, wrote and directed. And he's made many movies with Tony Leung, by the way. And this is simply one of the most beautiful films you'll ever see. It's about memory. It's about missed opportunities. It's about longing. And he just gives one of the best performances I've seen in, you know, in, in his career. And that's really saying something. This film, by the way, was also a huge influence. Wang Kar Wai in general is a huge influence on Sofia Coppola. And she actually thanked him when she won her Academy Award for Lost in Translation, which she openly, it's very easy to see if you see both films, that there is a, a through line between both of them. So she openly claims that as a inspiration for the film. Both great films, by the way. But that's In the Mood for Love from 2001, I believe. Speaking of which, I'll just throw it in there as yet another recommendation. Also, Wang Kar Wai, along with Tony Leung, in a film called Chung King Express from 1994. Now, this film is a huge influence on Quentin Tarantino. As a matter of fact, this was the first film that Quentin Tarantino released under his own distribution arm. And this is a modern romance set in Hong Kong. And it's a very entertaining film. Another romance of a sort. Very quirky romance, but another high recommendation. But the next official recommendation I wanted to throw out there was Infernal Affairs. So if you have seen The Departed, you're a big fan, and you've seen it multiple times already, and you want something a little bit different, I would recommend this film from 2002 called Infernal Affairs with Andy Lau, another big Hong Kong star, and Tony Leung in the first in the, in the main roles. And this is the original film that The Departed, the Martin Scorsese, Matt Damon. Leonardo DiCaprio film was based on this film, a direct remake, and it hits most of the same beats. But like I mentioned, if you haven't seen The Departed, I actually think this is a better film. My total, my honest opinion, I I like The Departed, don't love it, and maybe it's because I've seen this one before, but I prefer this over The Departed. And if you're the type of person who's seen The Departed multiple times and you really, really liked it, I recommend you watch this film just as a comparison point. And uh, it's excellent, and of course, Tony Leung is amazing in it. In my last recommendation, we're going to go all the way back to 1992. So here we are 30 years into his career. And this is a John Woo film. John Woo before he made Face Off and all those big Hollywood movies that he made and then kind of failed. He's kind of faded away, although he's still making films. He's trying to make a comeback now. I think he's going to make a Hollywood film now. But John Woo back in the day was all the rage and of course got invited to Hollywood in the first place. And one of the films put him on the map was Hard Boiled with Chow Young-Fat and Tony Leung, of course, in the roles, in lead roles, and not so dissimilar from Infernal Affairs. We have these two tough guy cops who are feeling each other out. They don't really trust each other always. It's possible that one is betraying the other, that one of them is an informant for the mob. So it's another mob and cops film that touches on some of the same themes as Infernal Affairs, but a whole decade earlier, and has a, some very, very stylish action sequences, as you would expect from a John Woo film. Lots of gun fu, as they call it and pigeons floating around, flying around in slow motion, <laughs> which is kind of a motif for his films. So those are my recommendations. If you are new to uh, Hong Kong films and you like action movies, Hard Boiled from 1992, Infernal Affairs from 2002, and then on the side of drama or romance, one more comedic, one very, very serious, but beautiful nonetheless and incredibly moving, In the Mood for Love on the more serious side and Chung King Express on the more effervescent side, both from Wong Kar Wai, starring Tony Leung. All right, with that digression out of the way, let's talk about What If. I am the Watcher. I am your guide through these vast new realities. Follow me and ponder the question. What if? All right, so I'm a big fan of anthologies. It's interesting. I like that there's just a lot of flavors in anthologies normally to the point where even if I dislike elements of the anthology, I'll oftentimes be a fan of watching it anyway because first of all, I'm not committing an hour and a half. Sometimes I'm committing, you know, depending on the size of the anthology, 30 minutes, sometimes 10 minutes for some of these kind of holiday horror anthologies, for example, a bunch of short films. And even if they're all mediocre, I just like the idea that's kind of different ideas, different flavors that are being uh, presented. So I'm pretty lenient when it comes to anthologies. That being said, I have to tell you that I found at points this What If anthology very tedious. And I think a big part of that was just the number of um, episodes we had. 
I mean, in the end, it's only nine episodes, but it felt much longer. And there are moments in this season where I really wanted to drop out. I almost like, I don't know if I'm going to keep watching this. Visually, I'm not, uh, I, I've heard a lot of complaints about the visual styling here. I am not an animation uh, super fan, but I liked it. I like this stylization. I like this kind of uh, rotoscoping or whatever they're doing to create this effect. And oftentimes recycling scenes from the actual Marvel film. So I thought that was clever. But I felt even on the best episodes, I felt that this was such fan fiction that it really kind of bored me. I just felt like nothing was consequential, but I changed my mind by the end and I'll tell you why. So to break down each one of these episodes, the first one was what if Captain Carter were the first Avenger? Oh, so let me set the context here. First of all, we have Jeffrey Wright doing a great job of voice acting here, playing the watcher. He plays the watcher in every one of these episodes. So he's the watcher. He's only, he's not supposed to intervene, but he watches the multiverse. He's there to bear witness to almost these failed historical events. Uh, you know, in, in basically nearly all of these episodes we see, things go horribly wrong. And uh, the idea is that no matter how bad things go, he cannot intervene. So like the pathos of this character is actually pretty interesting and maybe it will become part of the Marvel MCU proper. And I actually hope that that's the case because I did like this, this concept of this character, this watcher, which I'm not that familiar with. I'm not a big reader of the comics. So maybe this is something that's existed for, I know that the what if series existed in Marvel, but I don't know if this particular character was also the kind of linchpin for that series. And like I mentioned, the first episode is what if uh, Captain Carter were the first Avenger? So rather than Steve Rogers getting the super soldier formula, Peggy Carter does, and she becomes Captain America, despite sexism and other things. I thought this was interesting. Uh, I didn't love it. I also don't hate it the way that some <laughs> some internet trolls really despise this because they, you know, they can't can't have a woman be a Captain America. W women can't be captains, and, although that's not true, of course. But regardless. And uh, just the fact that it inflamed some people's, uh, you know, got somebody's ire up was entertaining enough. Although as an episode itself, it's just okay. It's just good. You know, it, some of the actions is good. But um, like I said, this one especially oftentimes does feel like um, fan service. But not as much fan service as, you know, tragically, really tragically, we have uh, Chadwick Boseman dying of cancer this year, of course. Uh, you know, really sad, especially considering, uh, you know, he, he was just so talented and so early in his career or you know, so early in his fame, I should say his career has been ongoing for a while now. But this episode really feels like a lot of fan service where we have what if Chala became Star-Lord. And, you know, they're, they're really just uh, it, it's it's a memorial to Chadwick Boseman. And in that way, I feel it is nice, you know, to to exist, especially for his fans. But uh, it doesn't really add anything to the mythology. But like I said, it serves its purpose. Definitely not one of my favorite episodes. The next episode is what if the world lost its mightiest heroes? And in this episode, we basically see that someone is killing off all the Avengers and Nick Fury is trying to find out what's happening. And I like this one. This one I thought was pretty clever. Of all of them, I thought this was an interesting take, although it still feels like fan fiction because it feels like it doesn't really have consequences within the MCU at all. So even as I was enjoying these, everything felt like it didn't really have any kind of stakes or anything. And I almost tapped out. As a matter of fact, I think I went a couple of weeks without watching. So the very time I tapped that was on that third episode only to have delayed my viewing of what if Dr. Strange lost his heart instead of his hands, which is the fourth episode. This at the time, I mean, immediately I was like, well, this is a great episode. This episode of the show, even as I was watching it, I was like, this can be a Dr. Strange movie straight up. This could be a Dr. Strange movie. You could add a little more detail here and there. There's some stuff that's rushed in the plot. Obviously it's only half an hour long and you could basically wrap this whole thing around another plot. Like this could be like the, the inner plot of an outer plot. And this would be enough for a theatrical release. Absolutely. This was really, really good, really strong. And you basically see that in this episode, Dr. Strange immediately at the beginning loses his girlfriend, Christine Palmer. And this basically breaks him. He can become so obsessed with correcting the past that he endangers the multiverse because he keeps trying to change what is unchangeable and it has a really great ending so i won't spoil it for you but this is a great episode if you just wanted to kind of watch one or two of them this is definitely one you put on your list next episode what if dot 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 zombies and uh this is pure fan service it's pretty uh, tedious <laughs> most of the way through you know in that it is uh you know just zombie avengers action and 
I guess in that way it is, it seems inconsequential because once again, for me, my personal taste, I know some people love, love, love zombies, anything zombie related, but for me, it just feels like, you know, this is something that is completely outside the scope of the MCU, but it has a, some good comedy. It's, and I thought that as out as I was on the episode early on, by the end, it has some good payoffs. The next episode is what if Killmonger rescued Tony Stark? I know this is a divisive episode, things, and I understand why people are so out on this episode. However, parts of this episode really work well for me. I just don't like how it ends on this cliffhanger, and I guess people don't like the fact that Tony Stark gets uh, manipulated by Killmonger. So this one kind of feels like the most inconsequential, but there are things about it that I find interesting that they're willing to take these risks. So it's just fan, I mean, it's just fan fiction, I should say, not fan service, and uh, feels pretty inconsequential. But I do find aspects of this episode interesting, although I don't think it necessarily works that well overall. And then the next episode is, what if Thor were an only child? <laughs> and it basically just talks about Thor being a completely spoiled brat. This episode as well was another moment where I found parts of it entertaining. I thought the comedy was pretty good. I thought some of the aspects, some of the things they were playing with were actually pretty interesting, even thematically. You have Natalie Portman come back and do her uh, as Jane Foster to do her voice performance, but really feels as inconsequential as it gets. And once again, coming off of the Killmonger episode, and now this one, I really started to think like, why are we still watching this show? I don't know if I am going to ride this out. And then, much to my surprise, as is kind of the my relationship with the MCU in general, they are able to pull this thing off. So minor spoilers, if you haven't watched the show, maybe jump like two minutes ahead. But in the next two episodes, we find out that all of these vignettes, all these short episodes are leading up to this one big confrontation. Ultron gets unlimited power, takes over the multiverse, and then the Watcher has to break his oath and unite these characters we've seen across these different stories, these uh, across the anthology, and unites them all into this kind of multiverse Avengers. And like I mentioned before, not only did they kind of pull the rug out from underneath me, even when I was kind of saying, I don't know if I want to keep watching this show, I don't know, they make it all pay off. And I was really impressed with this. Uh, maybe this is in the comics, so maybe if you're a comics fan, this wasn't surprising to you, it was surprising to me. But I just felt like they pulled it off. And that's kind of how I feel with the MCU in general. They oftentimes will make individual films. I'm not that on board with them. I'm like, well, okay, it's all right. I'm not really that enthusiastic about this one. We'll see how it goes. And they almost reclaim these mediocre films into a larger mythology, which is interesting to me. And they did it again, right here, in a very small way. And I am curious to know, there's definitely going to be another season of this What If, but I'm very curious to know, like, will The Watcher and will the version of Doctor Strange, for example, that we see here somehow fold into the bigger, broader MCU? So yeah, I was impressed with how they landed this whole thing. None of it's great, to be honest, except for maybe that first Doctor Strange episode, but they uh, make it all worthwhile in the end. So that is my review for this series overall. Enjoyable. And if you do get bored, if you do find it kind of low stakes and uninteresting halfway through, like I did, stick around because it does pay off in the end. And that just wrapped up in October. And I do not know when we would expect to see the next one, although I would expect probably late 2022. So many Marvel things to talk about. The next one is Hawkeye. This is the first Christmas we've had together in years. I love you guys. I'm making up for some lost time. Authorities are wondering if the masked vigilante who terrorized the city's underworld is back. The past has caught up with me. Should we be worried? No, no, it's nothing. I'll be home for Christmas. I promise. It's the most wonderful time. When I wore this suit, I made a whole lot of enemies. So like I mentioned before, although I am not a big comics fan, I did read the Hawkeye Mac Fraction series from a few years back because I had heard, first of all, that it was a really great comic book series. And second of all, that it was related to this show. What I would say to both things is that I liked the series, the book, the comic book series, and uh, that it's totally not that essential to watching the show, by the way. Uh, although I really did like the show. I mean, I really did like the comic. It is marginally associated to the show itself. In two, two things I would say that correlate heavily. One is the, the tracksuit mafia, which is, uh, you know, his uh, main antagonist in the comic series as well. And the comic tone, this darkly comic tone. There's other aspects too. There's the dog who eats, eats, eats pizza. Oh, and of course, 
uh, Kate Bishop as well. Although Kate Bishop is very different in the comics than she is in the series. Oh, and the last thing I will say that comes out of the comic is that, you know, it's directly related in the comic that he multiple times says that, oh, he grew up really loving those James Bond films. And uh, I never thought about this, by the way. Uh, and this is a failure of the MCU in general of fleshing out Hawkeye in any interesting way. But I never really thought about Hawkeye as a James Bond type figure, as a spy type figure. Although, of course, he has this whole relationship with Black Widow, who she's obviously a spy. That's her main talent, her spy craft. But we really don't see him. You know, it's all about him shooting arrows, right? But we get to see that in the series here. There's actually a very interesting sequence earlier on where he sneaks into a burned building and you kind of just see him kind of like disappear into the crowd and then put on a fireman's jacket and then disappear into the building and then just kind of, you know, and, and he just does his thing. And you really see him using his spycraft. And I really like that. Another thing they strongly play out here is that he's just a person, right? He's just a person who's very skilled at shooting arrows or shooting anything, by the way. Uh, he's just a marksman and a spy and that's it right so he is deaf practically and that's a joke and uh, also like a, a character development in the show itself so yeah i like this version of hawkeye and i really could care less about hawkeye as a character in the film jeremy renner is a character actor i do like and i did think when they need when he needs to act like for example with the the final scene he has with black widow in the avengers uh film the last event most recent avengers film i really think he pulled off that scene it was very painful and uh really well done but as a character i really don't care like i mean you really could take hawkeye almost out of the series and he's not that essential i mean he's done essential things but you could almost swap him out for anybody else so i do like to see him fleshed out here i do think they did a good job of making him uh, of fleshing him out he is still kind of by definition almost like a background character but they make that his character his persona they, you know he is someone who's supposed to be a spy to almost disappear into the background and you know he's he's an avenger who can walk around the streets of new york and people go like hey clint barton hey Thanks for saving New York. And he just kind of walks around. He's like a minor celebrity compared to, you know, Thor or something, which probably draws a crowd. They even make jokes about this, like uh, Kate Bishop, Hailey uh, Steinfeld, who's excellent in the film, by the way, in this show. And we assume, I assume that they're introducing her to be the new Hawkeye, probably like the uh, junior Avengers or whatever the next iteration of the Avengers is going to be. And she even makes a joke. She says, well, you know, your problem is, is branding. But she is a fan of Hawkeye. <laughs> Most people don't really see the appeal, but she's been a fan ever since she was younger. And that's why she becomes an archer. She's actually an expert archer as well. And they team up to find out what's happening. Someone has stolen some of these artifacts from a black market auction. And it included Jeremy Renner's, uh, or I should say, uh, Hawkeye's Ronin outfit. Ronin was the dark persona he took on during the blip when his family had disappeared. Went on a murderous spree against anybody who was a criminal. And he becomes a uh, a samurai or a ronin so he's basically trying to cover his own tracks so people don't find out that he was ronin and he needs to get his hands on these ronin artifacts and that's the basic framework it all takes place during christmas there's only six episodes by the way five have aired i'm curious to see what happens in the final episode i've liked this so far i would say if you have watched this and you saw the first two episodes and it was a little bit slow i agree third episode was really really strong and kept me engaged and it's been better ever since. Uh, the most recent episode's probably the strongest, uh, especially because the ending is strong. And we see a character come back, which if you've seen the Black Widow movie, you know who it is. If you haven't, I'll leave the surprise for you. Although, hey, the Black Widow movie's available on Disney Plus also for free at this point, if you have Disney Plus anyway. So you might as well watch that at some point also. And then here we are, one week away from the finale, right before Christmas. And uh, basically the overall theme of this season, by the way, of this season of show is can Clint get back home to be with his family in time for Christmas? Looks like he's not going to make it. He's only got one day to go, but we will see. He's got one day to go. He's got one episode to go. And uh, the story has just opened up significantly in this fifth episode. So I'm very curious to know what they're going to do with these reveals. I would say there's a twist in the fifth episode, by the way, that is the, the, the least surprising twist I've seen on any show this, this year, but uh, nonetheless, and we will see what they have in store for the finale. But I am liking this so far. It is definitely not essential viewing, by the way. Oh, I did want to mention, and this is definitely something that they are winking at in the show, a couple of things I really do like in the show. One is that we open the season with Hawkeye attending a Broadway show of Rogers, the musical, which is all about Captain America, apparently. And some of these musical sequences are hilarious. I am no fan of musical theater, and I do like whenever it's satirized in this way. So this is a very entertaining sequence. The second thing I want to mention is that it's taking place during Christmas. I can't help but think about Shane Black 
for those who don't know, was a hugely successful screenwriter and uh, eventually director and has made, wrote and directed Iron Man 3. So he's inside the MCU as it is. But more importantly is that all his films take place at Christmas time. You have Lethal Weapon, The Long Kiss Goodnight, The Last Boy Scout, Iron Man 3, of course, but even The Nice Guys, very funny movie, by the way, and Robert Downey Jr.'s comeback, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, all take place during Christmas. So this is a direct wink at those classic 80s, 90s scripts by Shane Black that'll take place, uh, these action movies that have Christmas as their backdrop. So yeah, overall, I like it. It's worth watching. Do not rush. <laughs> if you miss out, I'm sure this is pretty low stakes, but uh, maybe that'll change with the finale. I will caveat that point. But this is honestly, and even given some of the family dynamics and things like that, probably not a bad thing to watch with your family over the holiday itself. I haven't seen the finale, by the way, so if it turns out to be a murderous bloodbath, I doubt that's the case. <laughs> I do apologize. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out! Here comes the Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, there goes the Spider-Man. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. All right, with all that out of the way, I'm going to give you a little Spider-Man background here before I go see the movie. I, this, I'm recording this on Thursday, so I still have not seen the film. It's not out yet, but I will be seeing it within the next day or so. And I'm recording this right before I plan to go out and see it later today or tonight. So it's pretty amazing. Spider-Man has been around for so long. I actually mentioned this uh, in my most recent conversation with Sona in our Dexter recap. I mean, my wife was afraid of Spider-Man, the version of Spider-Man she saw in The Electric Company. So <laughs> this is back in the 70s. You have The Electric Company with Spider-Man in it. I, my first viewing of, of Spider-Man was when I was very young. I, I don't even remember how young I must have been at this time, but it's the old school, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, like the literal origin of that song. And if you haven't seen this, the animation is so rudimentary it's probably like four frames per, per second. As a matter of fact, they make fun of it in the bonus scene in Into the Spider-Verse, which is excellent, by the way. You have basically a, a frame from the comic itself, just with like an arm moving or a mouth flapping, and you, you could barely call it animation. <laughs> so this is how long this has been in popular entertainment. Of course, as a comic book, which I did not read, uh, even older than that, right? We're talking the 50s or 60s, I guess 60s. So that's my first exposure to Spider-Man. Then there was a very, very, very low budget Spider-Man in the 80s. I remember the, the costume, a complete failed show, but I remember, I remember it clearly when I was young that I loved that show. And of course it got canceled because a lot of those Marvel products were pretty cheesy. And of course, in retrospect, when I see this person in costume, it looks pretty cheesy. But I also grew up when I was a teenager watching Spidey and His Amazing Friends, which uh, Charlotte, my daughter, watches now because it's available on Disney+, Plus. although she kind of tuned that out already. But she is watching the, the latest version of, of Spider-Man. And it's amazing how... This is an evergreen pro property. I remember when my nephews were much younger, we went and saw the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy in movie theaters, and uh, they loved it. And of course, those films were massively, the Tobey Maguire films this is, were massively, massively successful at the time. <laughs> and that predates this new Avenger, uh, the Avengers. Uh, so that kind of, you know, opened the door to this modern era of all these comic book properties. But it's been around for so long, like I mentioned, in the 80s with all the cartoons, in the 90s with all the cartoons as well, in the 2000s with the Tobey Maguire films, and then uh, much less successful, but still financially impressive, Amazing Spider-Man series from about a decade ago now, maybe. And now finally, we have this John Watts trilogy, John Watts, the director, with Tom Holland as our latest Peter Parker. And it's incredible how huge Spider-Man is now, right? You have this trilogy of films. He's also in the MCU films, in the Avengers films themselves very, very popular character, and this trilogy of films itself. First of all, it's very interesting what's happening with Sony. The MCU has an agreement with Sony, which still owns the, the Spider-Man movies, to basically share the Spider-Man character within the MCU. Disney has acquired 20th Century Fox, so now the X-Men is now inside the MCU, and they're going to be integrating those characters, as well as the Fantastic Four, which was under 20th Century Fox. 
Spider-Man, because it's been so financially successful, has been able to kind of survive outside of the MCU, hasn't been acquired. And like I mentioned, even with the failure of these uh, those amazing Spider-Man movies, they still made enough money so that Sony continued to try to do this on their own. But back in 2017, with Spider-Man Homecoming, they started to rebuild this franchise. And they hit the ground running. I love Spider-Man Homecoming. It's one of my favorite Spider-Man movies. Uh, it's and probably my favorite of all the origins, even more so than the Sam Raimi ones, the Tobey Maguire, Toby Maguire origin Spider-Man. I love Michael Keaton and I love the relationship between Tom Holland and Michael Keaton as they develop this character. To like bulletproof the success of the film, they brought in Robert Downey Jr. to do, you know, as Iron Man, to do a small, small-ish, but important role. So this was like really a great synergy between the MCU. They really didn't half-ass it, basically. They really did give it a go. And I really like Tom Holland as Peter Parker. I mean, it's probably my, he's probably my favorite of all the Peter Parkers. And in that first film, I really love this whole low stakes. I think that there's, like I mentioned before in the Shang-Chi review, I find that it very problematic when the stakes are so high. And I think one of the things they really got right with the Spider-Man is that it's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, right? He's supposed to be much more low stakes. And I like that it's really about him trying to live as a teenager and yet having these superpowers, which of course is always the appeal and maybe the appeal for, to young people in general of Spider-Man. And keeping things that low stakes really made it a really entertaining film and, and honestly a very rewatchable film. It really feels like a teen comedy from the 80s or 90s. And I think that really works well. Then we had Spider-Man Far From Home. I personally am not a huge fan of this film. I feel like of, so, of all the MCU-like films, this one having to kind of do some work about what happened in the blip and everything. So there's a lot of that that kind of gets grandfathered into this story. And there's just so much Avenger stuff. And he's on this school trip to Europe. And this should be light and fun. And it doesn't really work. And then they shoehorn in a lot of this really weird, um, you know, Avengers legwork that they have to do setting up the next movies and i really feel it maybe more here than i do in almost any other recent film from the mcu i do however think that jake gyllenhaal does a really good job as mysterio i didn't really know mysterio's full backstory because once again i'm not a comic book reader so it was kind of funny i found the first half of the film kind of annoying minor spoilers if you haven't seen that movie by the way i'm trying not to spoil too much here but if you have no, no idea about M mysterio once again jump ahead about two or three minutes I found it very interesting. I didn't know that much about Mysterio. I thought he was a bad guy, but I, you know, I didn't know how they were really using him in the storyline. I felt the first half of the film was kind of annoying, right? And then, of course, we have the reveal, which then explains why the first half of the film was kind of annoying to me. <laughs> and I thought that was clever. Uh, but at the same time, I felt it was kind of strange because me, as someone who doesn't know this backstory, found the first half of the story annoying because I didn't know it. And then I feel like if you know what's to come, if you're a scholar of the comics, if you've read them and you know more about this character, then don't you find like the whole first half kind of tedious? I'm not sure, right? Uh, that's my read on it. That's my feeling on it. But, you know, maybe it worked for other people who are more comic book fans because they're like, oh, I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. But if you know what's going to happen, then don't you feel like you're kind of spinning your wheels for a very long period of time? That was my read on it. And, uh, and the action was kind of rote. So a lot of it really didn't work for me. Definitely not one of my favorites. Uh, but of course, we also have Into the Spider-Verse, which I loved, which is not in the MCU at all. But I guess maybe we'll fold in with the introduction of the multiverse. And of course, we have a multiverse film now we have no way home which is going to be uh the beginning of this marvel multiverse we know the multiverse is going to matter kang has been introduced as a multiverse villain in the loki tv show and we'll be back in in the next ant-man movie and in this film if you've seen the trailers if you haven't skip ahead a couple minutes <laughs> but if you have seen the trailer then you know that the are they're going to crack open the multiverse dr strange does it and it allows them to introduce the villains and spider-man spider-man from the previous films as well. And hopefully there'll be some more surprises there as well. But I will let you know when I finish watching the film. So here's my pre-watch Spider-Man roundup. And right after this clip from the trailer, you're going to get my spoiler-free review of Spider-Man. And then after that, you'll get my spoiler-filled thoughts on the film. So if you haven't seen the film yet, hang in there for the next few minutes. You'll get my spoiler-free review of the film. And then if you have seen the film, Come back, listen to the finale, to the last few minutes of this podcast, where I will be breaking down any spoiler talk and um, anything related to where the series goes from now. There's a lot more Marvel films on the way. Talk to you soon. When you botched that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man, we started getting some visitors. 
from every universe. There are others out there. We need to send them back. So, Scooby-Doo this crap. You know, all this is kind of your mess. I know a couple of magic words myself, starting with the word please. Please, Scooby-Doo this crap. So a little time travel. Here I am immediately after having seen Spider-Man No Way Home. And this is going to be right off the top of my head. So apologies if it's a little bit messy and if the audio quality might not be that great either. I'm trying to get this out as quickly as possible. So no spoilers to start. The first thing I would say is if you haven't somehow seen the trailer for this movie, don't watch the trailer for this movie. I literally had not watched it. I try to avoid trailers of movies I plan to see for sure. So I had avoided this trailer until last night when I was putting this episode together. And I wish I hadn't seen it, to be honest with you. They give away a lot of what's to come in the film. Not everything, though. But I'll try to spoil even less than the trailers do. I'll leave it generically that there are uh, that this pays a lot of fan service if you've been a long-term, long-time Spider-Man fan. And in, in a lot of ways, in a very low-stakes Spider-Man-ish type of way, you know, Spider-Man really is traditionally just fighting people in his own backyard. This is like the Avengers Endgame of Spider-Man movies. It really tries to tie in all these themes of the Spider-Man movies up until this point, like what is Spider-Man at his heart? And of course, having a lot of fan service as well to some of those movies before. I'll leave it as simple as that. If you've seen the trailer, you already know most of this, but not everything. Like I said, they didn't have really reveal everything, although they did reveal a lot. And speaking of, I intentionally got to the theater late. I did not want to see trailers. I try to avoid trailers for films I definitely plan to see. And not that I plan to see these films, but I have to criticize one specific trailer. The movie's called Ambulance. If you, by chance, are in the movie theater and have any interest in seeing this movie, it looks like a bank heist movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, and it's made by Michael Bay, and also features, or stars, I should say, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who's been having quite a big year this year. He was in Candyman, and he was in the Watch, um, Watchmen miniseries on HBO. And I think he's coming back for the Aquaman sequel as well. But regardless, there's some star power here. Michael Bay, a filmmaker that I do not really appreciate, to be honest with you has made this bank heist film and you should really avoid this trailer at all costs. I am pretty sure, I am pretty sure watching this trailer, which I probably wouldn't have watched anyway, but still, I was intrigued by the first the setup of the, the trailer itself. I do like a bank heist movie. I love the movie Heat and there seems to be a really good uh, gunfight and it got me excited. I'm like, well, maybe this would be like one of those classic bank heist type movies. So the setup, I'm intrigued, but that's not where the trailer ends. The trailer, and I won't spoil it for you here, basically gives away the setup, the first act, the second act, and I'm pretty sure gives us the third act all the way up until the stakes of the finale. I am pretty certain there are scenes or shots in this trailer that occur in the very last few minutes of this film. And I do not understand these trailers. If you're going to tell me everything that's going to happen, if there's not going to be a single surprise in the entire film, what kind of advertising is this? And maybe I, maybe I just <laughs> out of the loop with <laughs> trailers, but I don't want to know everything that the movie is going to surprise me with. I mean, what's the point of having any surprises or, or does this film just simply have no surprises? I mean, maybe it speaks to them having little confidence in the film itself, but I don't know. I, I don't get this at all. So, I mean, if you can avoid this trailer, avoid it as, at all costs. The other trailer that I did happen to catch was um, Channing Tatum in a movie called Dog. It's about a guy adopting a dog. Like, Channing Tatum was like an A-lister a few years back. And actually, he's a very talented guy, I think. You know, probably underused uh, in most of his films, although he's been very good in, in, in some. And I mean, uh, he's kind of uh, been low profile. So coming, make a comeback in a dog movie? Really? Like, this is what he gets? I, I don't know. <laughs> this better be a really good dog movie. That's what, that's what I got to say. All right. So I get my trailer reviews out of the way. The film itself, the Spider-Man film. So like I mentioned, this is kind of a culmination of uh, the Spider-Man films. And without spoiling anything, I will say that uh, my general impression of it was I found the beginning. It was kind of clunky. We're coming immediately off the previous Spider-Man movies, which is also bringing in all this extra baggage from the Avengers films as well. We, you know, have to deal with the, the blip. The blip was part of the Spider-Man franchise. Uh, Peter actually got blipped for five years. Some of his friends did, some did not. They bring it up slightly here. Uh, it's kind of backdrop to the story. They definitely acknowledge it, although it's not that important to the events of this particular film. 
But what is very important is what happened in the finale, speaking of Jake Gyllenhaal, of the last Spider-Man movie, which I will spoil here. I assume you're not going to go see this one without having seen the previous one. But he plays Mysterio, and Mysterio does die at the end of that film. But he's got one more trick up his sleeve, literally. He has basically outed Peter Parker as Spider-Man. And this is immediately where we pick up uh, in this film. And the repercussions of that, uh, where the world knows that he is Spider-Man. And, you know, of course, as you would expect, J. Jonah uh, Jameson is here. J.K. Simmons play, uh, reprising his role from the original Spider-Man universe films, the uh, Tobey Maguire films. And uh, you see his, like, you know, very subtly, they kind of wink at this. You see his rise to power. He starts, like, you know, recording in his uh, living room with a green screen behind him. And by the end of the film, he's uh, basically has his own studio. So he's, he, he's risen to fame by attacking Peter, which is kind of the trajectory he always has in these films and the comics as well. But this starts messing with Peter's life. Obviously, everybody's after him. They think, you know, if they believe Mysterio, he uh, was murdered by Spider-Man. And people are loyalists to Spider-Man. People are loyalists to Mysterio. And, of course, it leads to much complexity. And he has to deal with his aunt now knows. His friends all know. So there's a complexity. There's still the high school stuff, which is, of course, entertaining. But he needs a solution to this. So he goes and reaches out to Doctor Strange. The solution he comes up with would be to have people forget that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And the spell goes wrong. I won't go into details about why. It's not that important, to be honest with you. It's kind of a MacGuffin here. But they do, and then there's ramifications to that. So that's the setup. Uh, that's probably the first 30, 40 minutes of the film. Uh, and after that setup, which is very entertaining, although I think that <laughs> um, Doctor Strange is maybe an egomaniac, but also very, very negligent in allowing this to happen, to be honest. Uh, this reminds me a lot of, I have a, a pet theory that Tony Stark is the actual villain of the Avengers films because he has, uh, in trying to fix things, he always makes things worse. And uh, there's a lot of correlations to the fact that Doctor Strange may end up becoming the Iron Man figure now that Iron Man is no longer in the franchise. And maybe this character trait has is inherited by Benedict Cumberbatch as well in the Doctor Strange role. So despite the setup of the plot being a little clunky, and you really feel that the filmmakers are struggling to kind of tie all these things together. And I have to say that at about the one hour mark, I was checking my watch. I was kind of thinking, like, how far are we into this? And I'm like, wow, only an hour. This is a one and a half hour movie, by the way. So it started feeling long for me once kind of all the pieces were on the board. And some of these surprise appearances start to occur. Once again, not surprises if you've seen the trailer, but maybe you should try to avoid that if possible. So I had my critiques of what I was seeing. And then we have an emotional payoff, which I won't spoil here. But when it hits this emotional beat, the film kind of hits a new gear. I thought that worked really well. And then we get into the last section of the film, which is really like almost an entire hour long. And then the surprises really start coming. And then it really starts to hit on all cylinders. So the last hour of this film really is strong. And especially those, uh, it just kind of builds steam and builds steam. Like once I, like I mentioned, it's almost exactly at the halfway point of the film. And that first half is pretty clumsy, to be honest with you. Uh, and a little frustrating, but after you get past that, you start to see that all these pieces they've been setting up clumsily are starting to fit together and the plot starts to move forward and they really get some momentum going towards the end. I have some big thematic critiques of the decisions they made with the characters, which I will not spoil here. This is spoiler free. So I'm going to end my spoiler free review right here and say that if you have liked the previous two Spider-Man films then this is better than, I'd say this is definitely better than the, the second one, the one with Mysterio. But I do not enjoy this as much as Homecoming, just because Homecoming is such a pleasure. I think with the Spider-Man uh, film specifically, the discovery of the powers, that kind of youthful exuberance is always what's so appealing about the character. So I think that this one can't reach the levels of joy that that first film has. But uh, as fan service, if you're a Spider-Man fan, like, I mean, this is probably the Spider-Man movie you've been wanting to see your whole entire uh, film going lifetime. So it's definitely going to make fans happy. And the casual viewers, I think there's enough here to keep even casual viewers uh, engaged. Some of the performances towards the back half of the film are very strong. Uh, the action is okay. It's okay. Um, not some of the great, uh, some of my favorite uh, Spider-Man action is definitely from... Captain America Civil War, the whole battle in the at the airfield, still great, still classic. So it's good, not great. So I recommend it. And like I said, if you like the second one, you'll like this one more. 
Uh, if you didn't like the second one, this has some of the same things I didn't like about that second film, but much stronger in the end. Uh, so I think you will enjoy it a lot more. And you probably listen to this. I am pretty sure if you hung in here long enough to listen to this review, you're probably target audience for this. So go check it out. You will enjoy it. It's going to make a fortune, by the way. Looks like it's already breaking records. And I guess it's good news uh, with this COVID era that, you know, people still will turn up to the movie theaters, even if it's just for Marvel films. <laughs> but at least there's still hope. All right. So after the fanfare, spoilers, this is your last warning. I will be spoiling the end of the film. All right, so spoilers. The big thing, of course, Aunt May dies. I, I really am going to miss Marissa Tomei. I love her as an actress in general, and she has such a fun, unique energy here in the MCU. So very sad that they got rid of her. But it almost felt when it happened that it's like, well, this was kind of preordained, right? He doesn't have his origin story. He doesn't have his Uncle Ben story like the other Spider-Men do. So she has you know, basically replaced it. As soon as she said that line, that line you know she's going to say, you're like, oh, no, she's doomed. And indeed, she is. This is upsetting. And what really great cast they have here, um, just to call out Benedict Cumberbatch, doesn't do that much with his Doctor Strange role. He has a couple of scenes that he really sells, especially towards the very end. And he just gave an incredible performance in The Power of the Dog, by the way, which I will be reviewing in a separate episode. But uh, here, as Doctor Strange, he does great. He does fine. Um, I do like the Doctor Strange character, by the way. And I love the mind-bending visuals, which we see a lot of here. We also saw it in Doctor Strange. And they also saw some of this. I mean, maybe this is something that John Watts enjoys as well. Uh, even without Doctor Strange being in the second Spider-Man movie, we saw this kind of kaleidoscopic imagery in um, Mysterio's um, nightmare, a world that he trapped Peter in, uh, in that film. We see more of it here, this kind of uh, Inception on steroids um, mirror world that uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Peter, or Doctor Strange or, and uh, Peter, fight in. And I really love these visuals, uh, visuals, and I think we're going to see a lot more of it in the next Doctor Strange film, and, I, and I'm a big fan of it, basically. As far as the performances, uh, like I mentioned, what, you know, especially when you see Aunt May die, Peter, uh, Tom Holland's performance is Peter, very strong. Zendaya does good work, too. She's better used here than she was in the Dune movie, where she, uh, I assume she's going to do more in the, in the Dune sequel, <laughs> which is, uh, which is very, doing very good, but I, I very underused Zendaya in that role. But good here, but not as good as she has been in other things. And once again, since we're in spoilers, just to let you know that basically all the bad guys from the previous film come back. I think we, they, they've all been revealed in the trailers, but Alfred Molina comes back, Jamie Foxx comes back, um, you name it. Willem Dafoe comes back, of course, as the main villain. But then it's not until close to the end when Peter's outgunned by all these villains coming through the world and, and really at the end of his rope with um, having lost uh, Aunt May, that his friends and Daya as MJ and Ned, played by Jacob Batalon, summon Peter. Uh, Jacob, uh, I mean, I should say Ned, has uh, stolen, has ended up with Doctor Strange's uh, magic ring so he can open portals, and he wants to see Peter. Of course, there's more than one Peter Parker in this universe now because they have been pulled in from the multiverse, and that's when we see Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire as Peter number one and Peter number two from the previous series of films. And man, it's so much fun to see these characters back, um, especially, I have to say, I forget, you know, Andrew Garfield has kind of disappeared after being so hot early on in his career, has kind of disappeared from popular films. I thought he gave a really good performance as a, like a total sociopath in Under the Silver Lake, by the way. A very difficult film, <laughs> but a great performance by him. But to see him, like, like just... 100% charm. He is so pleasant that it's like just, it's just so much fun to see him back, let's say. And man, he sells his scenes. I got to tell you, of anybody's going to get my MVP in this film, it's going to be him. When he talks about not being able to have saved Gwen, it's heartbreaking. It's really, really great work. And yeah, there's a lot of great comedy. They're talking about, like, uh, they asked Tobey Maguire's uh, Spider Man, his Peter, well, you make that inside your body? <laughs> <laughs> because he can shoot. Um, he has. Uh, he's the only of the three movie versions of Spider-Man who uh, has native web shooting abilities, right? The other two have uh, mechanical, uh, chemical webs. So it's very funny when they start asking him questions about it and they all talk about like, who's the weird, greatest, craziest, craziest person you ever fought? Who's the craziest villain you ever fought? And uh, they kind of go through their whole series of shenanigans in the past in the previous films. 
anyway, this stuff is great. Like, like I mentioned before, I mean, I just criticized fan service in the what if uh, review earlier in this episode, but you got to love this. I mean, if you're even a casual Spider-Man fan, you got to love seeing all these things. Um, but they put some real stakes in there. I would say that this film could have easily been just nothing but fan service, but I think that they have some real stakes there, some real emotional stakes, especially with losing Aunt May, of course, but also making the tough decision that, you know, to do the right thing, basically, once again, spoilers full here, that he makes a decision to try to rescue these villains, to fix them. He wants to fix these people rather than send them back to their fates. Doctor Strange just wants to send them back through the multiverse, send them back to their fates. Most of them are going to die. And Peter can't live with that. But of course, it leads to Aunt May's death. And um, and in my perspective, by the way, I think it's the wrong choice. My personal perspective, it's the wrong choice. Aunt May didn't have to die. And not only Aunt May, by the way, they're blowing people up. Those guys are out there hurting people. C conveniently, it may, they make it sound like no one else has died. But other people could have easily died with all of these... Um, battles and uh, that occurred uh, after the fact not to mention you know the buildings that are destroyed that we visibly see being destroyed and the statue of liberty <laughs> not destroyed by the way but but damaged probably and all of that because he tried to do the right thing and this is what the film is trying to play with the theme that the film is trying to explore and honestly my opinion is i don't think the trade-off was worth it <laughs> although all of them seem to be on board with this especially with green goblin by the way green goblin proves himself to be to the very last such a bastard until he's quote-unquote cured that uh i don't understand why anybody would try to save him to be honest and then of course in the end um they do save all of them or they do fix all of them and of course since all the spider-men are there then they all get sent back to their correct timelines which means that they all have a choice now to not be villains and to as the heroes not to kill them right and so it's all up to them back in that timeline in their uh, appropriate timelines but of course we assume that that is to say that everything's going to work out well there as well but that's still not the end of the film uh, this is actually yet another tragic beat in the plot that uh, Doctor Strange cannot contain this uh, rupture in uh, the multiverse Peter Parker goes well there's one way we can solve this, I think, which is make everyone forget me, right? So the reason all the way back at the beginning, the reason this spell goes wrong is because Peter wants to say, okay, I want everyone to forget that I'm Spider-Man, but not MJ. Well, no, not Ned and oh, not my aunt. And it's like all these caveats, which blow up the spell. Once again, uh, very negligent that Dr. Strange is, you know, should be in a room by himself <laughs> and not allow all these distractions. It's very, very cavalier in the way he casts the spell, but still. And then Peter goes, well, let's just make this spell very simple. Everyone forgets Peter. Everybody forgets Peter, period. Cumberbatch, this is probably his best performance, this moment when he realizes what that means. He's going to be like, do you know what that's going to mean? It's not only that your friends are going to, everyone's going to forget who you are. You're going to be an invisible person. You're going to have no history. And he goes, that's okay. I can do that. It's a kind of bittersweet ending. He has to say goodbye to, to MJ. But then at the very end, after this spell is cast and everyone forgets him, there is something, once again, very melancholy about this finale because he does try to meet up with MJ. He's going to tell her everything and see if he can kind of convince her. But then he realizes, wait a second, this is a way I can protect her. She doesn't know who I am. And by the end, he's really embraced his anonymity. He's like, I, I have no history. I'm, I'm on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm out. And, uh, and this is really sweet, I think, right? He's Spider-Man again. He's in a very low-tech suit. He's not using the juiced-up Stark suit anymore. He's using a just a fabric suit. And it's almost like an origin story to the Spider-Man. After three films, we have a, the origin story back to Spider-Man 1.0. We have, instead of Uncle Ben, we have Aunt May has died. But now we have this guy living by himself, very poor, you know, just fighting crimes, like listening to the police scanner and, uh, and by himself alone. And he's really cut himself off from all of these relationships to protect everybody around him and protect himself as well, right? interesting, uh, you know, kind of a reboot of Spider-Man. And honestly, they could almost leave it here. Uh, Tom Holland is only contracted for six films and he's made three Avengers films and three Spider-Man movies. So they are planning to keep him in the franchise, but I can almost imagine that this is the end of this uh, storyline, right? And there could be another Spider-Man in the future, obviously, or he can come back and do, you know, re-emerge re as uh, they'll be like, who is this guy, right? So it could happen, but they can play it by ear. They could they can play it multiple ways, basically, is what it comes down to. All right, so that's the end of my review for the most part. I have, however, now here at the end, all my nitpicks, all the things that I cannot understand how this would ever make sense. And I have a couple of angry statements about the stupidity of some of the characters in this film. So here come my nitpicks. Here comes all the ugly things I think about this. 
All right, so I have a bunch of logistical crit criticisms here. But the first one, again, to harp on how utterly negligent Dr. Strange is. This doctor needs to be charged with malpractice, magic malpractice. I mean, this is incredibly irresponsible. <laughs> now, uh, a little inside Hollywood point here is that this movie was supposed to come after the Dr. Strange movie. And because of COVID and the delays in production, they had to rewrite this script as they were shooting, the Spider-Man script, and had to also reshoot big chunks of the upcoming Dr. Strange movie. So maybe some of this awkwardness in getting the plot going is from there, from having changed the sequence of the films. But just like as it stands, watching the film, I'm like, wow, this guy's incredibly negligent in casting this initial spell. The second criticism I have is, once again with the magic, once he casts that spell that erases everyone's memory of Peter, is exactly how does this work? Doesn't Isn't there like videos on everybody's computer uh, of Mysterio announcing who Peter Parker is, that Peter Parker is Spider-Man? Even if somehow people don't know who Peter Parker is, this video would still exist on people's laptops and on YouTube and all over the world. And inevitably, someone will watch that video and be like, huh, this is weird. <laughs> Who's this Peter Parker person has no history at all? And then, you know, you can uh, start to, he will start to appear on people's radars, even if he's uh, disappeared for now. And, and there's still paperwork, right? Like even if people, even if individual minds have changed, they forgot who Peter Parker is, there's paperwork. There's a, a birth certificate somewhere. There's uh, college entrance exams, etc. I don't understand how this magic works. Did he go and change all that paper too? Did he find every single digital copy? And does he have uh, internet magic too? This is... <laughs> There's a lot of cleanup, a lot of cleanup that has to happen. And uh, I don't know how they're going to explain it away. But I guess you could just say, hey, magic. So if that's the case, <laughs> I'll take it. All right. So that's my uh, review. That's my nitpicks. Maybe one last nitpick is the action. Some of the action is pretty solid. Some of the action is just okay. I uh, I do like, uh, like I mentioned before, one of my favorite action, action sequences of all times from within the MCU is that battle at the airport on the airfield. And I love how Spider-Man uses his powers, improvising constantly to fight against these Avengers. And uh, given that, uh, except when there's a, a really cool tag team moment um, with all the three Spider-Men, other than that, we don't get a lot of that here. There's not as much creativity, which I found a little surprising. So that one last nitpick, but overall, definitely worth watching. I mean, if you are a Spider-Man fan, you're going to see this. There's no way I can keep you from watching it, but you're going to like it. You're going to love it, actually. If you're, I think the more diehard Spider-Man fan that you are, the more you're going to love this movie. So I think that speaks well to the product they created as pure product. And as a film, it's good. It's entertaining. I liked a lot, big chunks of it. And, um, and I do hope that we see more of this Peter Parker. All right. So this weekend, stay tuned. Another Dexter recap, some more succession conversation, a recap of the season with Sarah, a more of a psychological profile on the remaining episodes of the season that she just caught up on. And probably within the next week or so, stay tuned for The Power of the Dog, not only a review, but a deep read of the film, which I was really impressed with. I kind of watched it initially, wasn't that impressed with it. I'm like, okay, I love the performances, love the visuals, but this is the movie that everybody's been, you know, saying is the best movie of the year and everything. And then as soon as the movie ended, I started to play it back in my mind and I got more and more in, richer and richer in reading it. So I definitely wanted to get all my thoughts out there and I'll probably record it and put it out probably within the next week or so. If you haven't watched that, check it out. Like I mentioned, that should be out within a week or so. All right. Talk to you soon.